The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll take your Bibles and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We are continuing to plow through the book of Romans. I want to say a public, uh, humble apology to my friend Mike Walgie. Where are you, Mike? Mike uh, was teaching Romans last year, and I was making fun of him because he was going so slowly through that. And I said, I'm just going to do the paragraphs. Mike, I was wrong. We're going to be in Romans 1 for a while. And um, uh, I just feel like I I had one of those significant birthdays a few weeks ago that you all made fun of me, uh, turned 50. And I just thought, I probably won't get to preach Romans in my lifetime again, cover to cover. And so I just feel like you know, the store is closing and I'm grabbing everything I can off of the racks before I, before I can get out of here. I don't think that illustration worked, but anyway. <laughs> We're going to pick up the argument of Paul condemning mankind in verse 28. This is the third of the three God gave them over clauses. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. These are remarkable words in God's holy scripture. These are incredible words which speak not only of the outward display of the sin of humanity, but go after the heart. Reading the front page of any given newspaper on any given day informs us that the world in which we live is a place of declining perplexity and growing unsettlement. Domestically, battles rage and wage. You see it on the TV screens. You see it on the news shows. You see it in the papers. They wage wildly between conservatives and liberals, between political parties, between the states and the federal government, between homosexuals and heterosexuals, between men and women, between classes, between races, between socioeconomic subcultures, and even between news organizations that are supposed to only tell us what is happening. It's remarkable to me to watch the last few weeks just flipping around between the three or four major news channels And a large part of what they're doing is reporting on the reporting of another channel. What kind of world do we live in when we're looking to the news to see see about reporting on reporting about reporting? Internationally, matters are no more settling. Wars, rumors of wars, coups, assassinations, turmoil in strategic locations, the Middle East in constant upheaval, threats of nuclear acquisition and nuclear war, genocide, rogue dictators and the rise of religious radicalism that understands its mission to kill the unconverted. Now let me say, as troubling as the threats to domestic and international settlement are, and they are legitimate, 
I'm even more troubled by what's happening today in the church. What's happening in our generation of evangelicalism. Should God wait to send his son, I wonder in a hundred years what the church history books will say about us. There's no doubt today that the church is swimming upstream in absolutely white, turbulent waters. We're tacking in strong, brutal headwinds. And that's within the, the doors of the church, not even against the culture. It seems as if everything is in question and undergoing an unbiblical revision. I mean, think about it. Over the last century, the gospel itself has been bartered, traded, nickeled away for a slick substitute that's entirely different than the Bible presents as what it means for a sinful man to meet a holy God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This substitute gospel is not so much good news as it is better news. In other words, the gospel offers you a better life than you have now. It's self-improvement. It's human achievement. This new gospel fails to produce deep humility. It fails to produce profound holiness. It fails to produce profound reverence, selfless care, or even radical sacrifice. Where are the pastors who are willing to give their life for the church? Where are the missionaries who are willing to turn their back on the pleasures of this world in Western society and go to a place where it's not only uncomfortable, but where they might even die because of the name of Christ? Where are those people? Why has this happened? Well, I think it's because the new ways of thinking about the church and the gospel, and even God himself, lacks the proper gravitas. It lacks the proper center point. It lacks the proper anchor. This new substitute gospel that is so easily proffered in the church is all concerned with helping people, giving them a hand, bringing them peace, happiness, comfort, satisfaction, and purpose. Now, I'm all about peace, happiness, satisfaction, and purpose. Who wouldn't be? God made us to crave and want those things. But can I dare say that the true gospel, though it is concerned about helping people, is mostly about providing this aid by giving lives and glory to God. It's almost as if God has been X'd out of the equation of the gospel. It's about social enablement, help of the poor. And I, I think we should help the poor. I think we should be enablers of people to understand the grace that's ours. But the mission has largely been lost in the church. The goal of the biblical gospel, the goal of the gospel that God has invented, that God explains in ferrets out in prediction in the Old Testament and in fulfillment in the New Testament is to teach people how and why to worship God by dying to self. The goal of this new gospel is to teach people how to feel better, especially about themselves. Now, may I suggest that feeling better about oneself is not only a wrong goal of the gospel, but it's also the wrong starting point 
thinking that the world owes us uh, comfort, it owes us purpose, it owes us significance, is rooted in the two issues for which Paul indicts humanity. Look back at verse 21. Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. There it is. Honoring God as God includes giving thanks to God for what we have, not complaining for what we don't have. God will give ultimate peace. God will give ultimate safety. God will give security and purpose and meaning and satisfaction. And we'll have tastes of that in this life. But that's called heaven. Too many people are trying to make this earth like heaven. Have have you read the Bible? We heard last night uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. If our Bibles are true, and I believe that they are, do, do, do you think America's going to get better? Do you think culture's going to get better? I, can I just say, and this is probably a cheap shot, but I want to say it. Those who believe in, the, in an amillennial approach to Scripture or a postmillennial approach to Scripture, which includes the world getting better before Jesus is going to come back, that's like the worst theology and the most boring motivation I could ever think of. And the Bible says it's going to get worse. Hey, if I have an opportunity to vote for moral decisions, I'm going to vote every time. But don't think that the Savior lives on Pennsylvania Avenue. And don't think he lives in the Congress or the House of Representatives or the Senate. Let's quit trying to think that somehow, someway, we're going to make a better place. And we will, by our voting and legislating and our attempts at living rightly, Usher in such a wonderful age that God will say, now they're ready for me. He'll send his son, and then he'll sit on the throne. All that is to say this. One of the most important building blocks of a healthy biblical theology, a healthy doctrinal stance in our heart, is an understanding of sin. As Paul, in Romans chapter 1, launches his manifesto on the truth of the gospel, that's what the book of Romans is, he begins with homardiology. It's a big word I want you to learn today. Homardiology comes from the Greek word that means sin. It's a study of the doctrine of sin. He starts with that. How thorough is your understanding of sin in general? How thorough is your understanding of sin in your own heart? Now, in order to do this, and I'm going to confess, just to relax, it may take us a few weeks to get through this because this is so critical to our bedrock theology and foundation of everything we think about the gospel. Let's take a little tour. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 1. I want to set the stage for Paul's description of homardiology, of the study of the doctrine of sin, by going back, first of all, to the Old Testament and then from the lips of our Lord himself, which will land us right in the middle of Romans chapter 1. Isaiah, as you know, was writing to a stubborn group of Jewish rebels who he was trying to explain, you need to turn from your sin and repent and come back to God. This is before the Babylonian captivity. He was prophesying that this was going to happen. Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, I want you to listen to Isaiah. Now, we've said this before. Let's say it again. 
if you want to study the book of Romans, you've got to get used to, to having your esteem hammered. This is not a book of self-esteem. This is a book of biblical truth, which makes us get all of our esteem from the Christ that God sent, not from our own inward righteousness. Listen to this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Okay, let's listen to him. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. There's the first clue that humanity is not so good as we might think at first glance. As an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. There's another insight. We don't understand. Israel then, us now, don't understand the ways of God, nor do we seek them. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Wow, there's one. Weighed down with iniquity. Hard to even run because it's tripping us up. Offspring of evildoers. Is that clear enough? In sin, my mother conceived me, David said. Sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. There's the, there's the issue. Abandoning the Lord is what causes all of these states to be in our soul. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? This is not pleasant language. Now look at the comprehensive nature of the sin. Isaiah says, quoting the Lord, the whole head is sick. That has to do with our thinking. And the whole heart is faint. That has to do with our inward disposition and mission control decision point. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in, you could say it or us, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Turn over to Isaiah 5. Right before that great vision in chapter 6, Isaiah continues to indict the sinfulness of the people. And this was not just those rascal, rebellious Israelites. This is the state of humanity. Look at in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with a cart, as if, as if with cart ropes. That's saying that people want sin so much they'll invent ways to drag it with them so that they can enjoy it. Who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Welcome to our nightly news. Who substitute dark for light. And they substitute light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the one, the ones who are in the right. Jeremiah 17.9, you know it well. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who is able to know it? And the implied answer to that is not even you. You don't know your own heart. You don't, we don't understand. We need each other as, as believers in the body of Christ to show each other what wickedness we see still resident in us in our pursuit of sanctification. We are unable to even see in the mirror of our own soul 
Ecclesiastes 9 is a, is a very penetrating passage. Um, Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 9.3, This is an evil that in all that is... That in, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That there's one fate for all men. Furthermore, listen to this. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they grow to the dead. And then he goes back, uh, or going back in Ecclesiastes 8, he says this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, because the second, the second you sin, you're not judged Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. People presume on God's grace. He hasn't judged them so they think they can sin some more. He hasn't come in judgment so they think it's okay. He hasn't, he's demonstrated grace and mercy and long-suffering. And people, instead of turning to God, stomp on his patience and grace and fully pursue their evil. If that's not clear enough, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 21, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus said, what's his assessment of humanity? For from within, that's in the heart, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Did you come to Jesus to have your esteem lifted this morning? It's quite an indictment. Can we sneak a peek just for a moment over at chapter 3, Romans chapter 3? Just turn the page. I can't wait to get here. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? He's talking about Gentiles and Jews. Who's better? Who has the more just position before God? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now he says this, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Can you just pause and drink that in and breathe that air? There is none, none righteous, not even one. He goes on, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless, worthless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throats an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of, their, of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction, and misery in their paths, or in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. Here it is. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How healthy is your understanding of homardiology? Do we really grasp how desperately sick and wicked our own hearts are? Because Paul's argument is if you don't get that, the gospel will just be what people have made it. Ah, it's, it's better news, not good news. It's helpful, not hopeful. It, it's a way, not the only way. When we come to Romans 1 and we see Paul's indictment of the human heart, and that we are clinging on to an opportunity to respond to the gospel with our fingernails only because we can hear his message, it ought to cause all of us to pause and whisper to our souls how thorough is our understanding of our own indwelling sin. Now, lest you think, and we have to just add this footnote, lest you think that 
That's for the unbelievers, those rascal people who don't believe in Christ. That's them. Now that we're saved, we're all on the, on the path. Turn over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 17. So this I say, Paul says, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. What he's saying is, remember how you used to be? Um, Don't be that way anymore. Christ should have a massive difference. Can I say this? Jesus Christ is far too precious, far too wonderful, far too valuable, far too powerful to ever invade the human heart without there being a massive, radical, seismic difference in that life. Being darkened in their understanding, verse 18, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them, because of the hardness of their heart, as they have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I love this. You would expect Paul to say here, but you didn't learn how to live as a Christian that way. Do you see what he says? In opposition to living like that, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Do you see that Christianity is a person, that our faith is in him, that he is the one we love, he is the one we proclaim, he is the one who is precious, he is the gospel, he is the good news. Back in Romans chapter 1, uh, the, the, um, uh, verse 1, the gospel of God in verse 3, concerning his son, it's all good news about him. You didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him, been taught in him, his truth is in Jesus, listen to the Christ-centeredness of this, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. All to say this. When we're saved, all of that resident sin that's in us doesn't evaporate. Don't you wish it did? Don't, don't you wish you just stopped sinning? Are you tired of confessing the same sins over and over and over and over? If you are, just be glad that you're confessing the same sins over and over. Such grace with God. Paul's saying you lay that aside. That's called sanctification, becoming holy, set aside to the Lord. In this passage, back to Romans 1, Before us, Paul has said in verse 16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The good news of God concerning his son is powerful enough to change all that we've studied about our sinful disposition. Oh, not perfectly. 1 John chapter 2 says that if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar. If you're waiting to be perfect in this life, uh, stop waiting. It's not going to happen. But if we, keep reading, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. Is that good news? Is that good news? In talking about that power, then Paul says, okay, that's only important to you if your understanding of your own sin 
is so thorough that you have a desperate, clinging, begging desire for God to save you because you understand, as my son said when he was really little, that you're in trouble with God. And only Christ can get you out of trouble with God. By dying in your place, by absorbing the rightful, furious anger and wrath of God that we've been studying in Romans 1 as a substitute for us, and not only does he substitute for us in taking on the wrath of God, he gives us Christ's righteousness in our place because we understand you can only go to heaven if you're perfect. Who could do that from now till death? Who could erase what we've done since birth? We need an alien righteousness. That's the gospel. That's such good news. We don't have to be good enough. Only Christ was good enough. And he says, I will give you my righteousness to substitute for your sin so that God will save you. And in the place of your righteous judgment, I will take that on my body and be crucified on a cross that you deserve. You say, really? Really? He said, yeah, let me prove it. I'll rise from the dead. Dropping into verses 24 and following, we find three statements of God that are quite disturbing. Three times God says through the Apostle Paul that because of the sin and in light of the sin and in pursuit of certain sins, God gave them over to the sins. He, he let them go. He took his restraint off. Now, that doesn't mean that God made them start sinning. We can liken this to what happens in the book of Deuteronomy when, uh, in Exodus when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't make his heart hard. The heart was already hardened, hard. He just let the cement dry. That's what happened. God is never the inventor. God is never the source, the cause of evil. But this should be scary stuff because there is a time, and no one knows that individual time with an individual where God will say, if you want to pursue your sin, I'm going to let you have it. And we've entitled this section, When God Has Had Enough. Looking at this more specifically, we began last week in looking at the three ramifications of violating God's gracious limits. The three ramifications of violating God's gracious limits. Let's just review that real quick. We looked last time in our last study at, number one, being given over to impure thoughts. God gives us over to impure thoughts. Uh, we see two uh, kind of dimensions of that in deep-seated lusts and also in idolatrous motivations. That's in verses 24 and 25. We've already covered that, so we won't go back and, and dig into that. But God gives people over to impure thoughts. It starts in the heart. We'll come back to that in a moment. Secondly, a second ramification of violating God's gracious limit, his grace, is being given over to sexual deviance, sexual disorders, sex outside of God's design. That's in verses 26 to 27. First of all, we saw it was expressed in lesbianism. Women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural in verse 26. Secondly, it was expressed in sodomy, men doing the same thing and burning after their own gender. There's a third time, though, that God, we studied that already, that God says, I'm going to give them over. And this, to me, is the most frightening. This is being given over, number three, to unrighteous 
minds, unrighteous minds. We're going to begin this this week, and it's going to take us another week or so to get through this. This final section of Romans 1, Paul will provide for us a list. It's a list of sins to which God has given men over. It's remarkable when you read this list of sins, how critical people can be of the big sexual perversions and homosexuality and and this and that and R-rated movies, and you can go on and on. But then when you compare that God gave people over to that in the same way that he gives people over to this final list, we are all multiple places listed in this final list. Let him without sin pick up a stone and throw it. Now this breaks down into three uh, uh, sections under this. uh, Being given over to righteous minds. First of all, unrighteous minds that generate comprehensive breadth and wickedness. That generate comprehensive breadth and of wickedness. Verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, literally to have God in their knowledge. They couldn't stomach God and his thoughts, God and his standards. God said, okay, and he gave them over to a, a broken, a sinful, a depraved, a reprobate mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, don't miss this. Improper deeds always come from improper minds. Uh, my former pastor and mentor, John MacArthur, used to say, when a man falls into sin, he doesn't fall very far. That's the end result of multiple thinking compromises, uh, compromises of thought that have happened way before that big fall. Third time, Paul uses, employs the potent phrase, God gave them over. For the third time, he uses it. Here's the issue. It's more than just acts of sin. It's, it's the heart. It's the mind. It's polluted. Now, if we can go back and just grab a bit of church history, this is really super important because church history really divided at this point with Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic theologian who uh, developed a system of understanding man's sin that was named after him. It was called Thomistic. I don't know why they didn't call it Aquinistic. Maybe that's harder to say. Thomistic theology. Thomistic theology says this. Man is depraved. Man is sinful, but not totally. Deep down in his heart, man has a place where he can decide whether to pursue God or pursue himself, pursue righteousness or pursue unrighteousness, to sin or not sin. He's depraved, but not all the way. And the reason he did that is he wanted man's responsibility before God to be his own in not only damnation, but also in salvation. Now, we're going to come back to that when we get to Romans 9 and God's power and sovereignty in salvation. But if what Paul is teaching us here is true, and I hope we all will say it is, a depraved mind has no corner that's unstained by sin. There is no little part of any unbeliever that says he's holding back and saying, I'm going to keep this pure in case I ever want to pursue God. We are stained, what does Isaiah say? From head to foot, from the top of our head to the sole of our feet, we are sinful and wretched. There's none righteous, no, not one, none that does good, none who seeks after God, none who understands. 
We don't even understand our own heart. At the issue here, at issue here is a depraved mind. A dokimas. It means falling, failing to meet the test. This unrighteous, this depraved mind. We can't pass God's test, worthless, unqualified. It was used of an athletic endeavor that meant you were disqualified. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, this same word, when he says, lest I myself be disqualified. That's the word here for depraved, unqualified. Proven inability to do good, unfit, untrustworthy, worthless. That's a big word. Odokimos. Noose, minds, thinking. Our decision-making center, that's what he's describing as being broken and sinful. Now, a little footnote. This doesn't mean that every person can be as sinful as they could be. Not every sinner is as sinful as they could be, and we should thank God and his restraining grace for that. But it does mean that all of these acorns reside in our hearts, and only in some people do they become full-blown trees. Just as depravity is fundamentally a mental issue, so is Christianity. It's a, it's a battle of the mind. It's all in our thinking. 2 Peter 1, 2-3, very clear. I want, you to, I want you to see this because it's, it's rooted. This ought to be one of those, those passages that you circle and underline in, in, your, in your Bibles. In First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one, Paul, uh, Peter says, "Grace and peace be multiplied to you." Verse, three, verse two, in the here it is, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. It's gospel-centered thinking. He goes on, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How do we get that, Peter? Through the true, what's the word? Knowledge of Him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Just as the reason people pursue sin is an issue of their heart and mind, the reason people pursue God is an issue of the heart and mind as well. It's thinking. Now we come to the list. Paul is so fond of lists. Uh, when I was uh, in, in, in seminary, I remember our instructor saying, you know, it's the hardest part to preach, the, the hardest things to preach in the Bible are lists. And, and he's right. But listen, just listen for fun. Paul, uh, he gives a list in 1 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11 of the sins that people do and for which they should avoid and that, that, to avoid after they're believers. 1 Corinthians 9, excuse me, 6, 9 to 11, it's the sins for which people will lose heaven and be judged in hell. 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 20 list sins which the Apostle Paul was going to confront in the believers at Corinth. Galatians 5, 19-21 gives a list of things that are representative of the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4, 31 gives a short list of relational sins of the believer who he should be repenting of constantly. Ephesians 3, 5-5 to, uh, to 5 includes another list of the sins that reveal the hearts of the unconverted. And 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 it catalogs sins that are damnable and contrary to biblical sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, we go on and on, lines up the sins that are indicative of false teachers. 2 Timothy 3 chronicles the sins that show us the decline of man's morality as it escalates toward the coming of Christ. And Titus 3.3 3 shows the sins 
in a list that used to be a part of the believer's life. Paul loves throwing lists at us. And he throws lists at us just to, if I can use the NFL penalty, to pile on. He wants to go, ow, 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 I'm buried. To feel the full weight. Lest you think there's any wiggle room, Paul says, I got a few more things for you to consider. Well, um, then he starts into this group of lists. We're going to deal with each word on this list in detail in our next study. Because it's a long list. But in the middle of this passage, it was important for us, it is important for us to do what we've done this morning. And that's just to say, do we, do we get it? Is this just a nice passage? Or do we get what Paul is saying about us? And do we get that our friends and relatives are in a position of pursuing sin absent the gospel and there will be a time when God gives them over to that sin and says, I've had enough. Here's the good news. Until a person dies, you never know that they've been given over. And so our heart, our passion, our joy is to tell people there is hope to be forgiven for your sin, have your sin covered by the grace of God in the glory of the death of his son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, his only precious son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't die and be in hell forever, but would go to heaven and have eternal life. There's such good news. But that is not good news to a person who hasn't seen how black their heart is and how bad the news is without Christ. The church has propagated this. It's... We don't like talking about sin these days. You're afraid we'll be rejected. You're afraid the uh, church attendance will go down. I, I told you, if we're going to read Romans, you better have some thick skin. Paul is not kind to us, but he's truthful. And in that is gracious to us by seeing it. God died for sinners. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, the Lord Jesus Christ in flesh, just die for me? That's only precious if you realize how badly we need the gospel. There's none righteous, not even one. None who seeks good, not even one. Sure, there are people who may say they're better than others, who don't sin in the categories that other people say, but everyone from birth has held a stiff arm in God's face and said, my way, not yours. And God in the gospel breaks that arm and brings that person close in the glory of salvation. This last week, I had an opportunity to preach a, a funeral at, uh, for uh, Curtis Smith, Leanne Capp's brother. And um, Bob and Kathy were over there with us at the, at the funeral. It was just, it was disheartening to me to see so many people who were unbelievers there. You, you don't get a chance to preach to a congregation of unbelievers that often. And this was a, a group that was largely people who didn't understand the gospel or understand Christ. And what I told them was just real simple. What kind of fool, what kind of fool would say no to forgiveness of sin? 
What kind of fools say no to mercy, no to grace, no to heaven? You don't choose heaven or hell. We're all born on our way to hell. And only the gospel rescues us from that path. What kind of fool says, no, I like living my life better. I will sacrifice eternity for the temporal pleasures of sin. What kind of fool does that? Well, my my begging plea is don't be that fool today. Don't be that fool today. As the great preacher Jonathan Edwards said, God has swung open. He says literally, God has flung open the door of mercy today wherein you may find rest for your soul and a savior for eternity. The mind is wicked and depraved. And as Jeremiah says, we can't even know it ourselves. So don't, don't walk. <laughs> Run to Christ. Don't pay. Run to the cross and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I can't do enough to please you. I can't do enough to erase my sin. Please, please forgive me because of your son. You know what God has promised? Isaiah 55, those who seek me will find me. That's great news. Don't live, I beg you, don't live another day under the weight of your own sin. Come to Christ who can forgive and cover it. And you'll find tastes of glory divine. You'll find glimpses of what heaven's going to be like. And the first and foremost place that should happen is in here, in the way we respond to one another. Let me pray, and after I do, our prayer room will be open to my right. Ben Hyman will be over there. There'll be uh, some men and women who would love to talk to you. If you have anything to talk to, have us pray for you about this morning. Thank you for coming today. This is the right day to come and talk about issues in your soul. Don't leave without dealing with that, please. Lord, dismiss us with... Thoughts of your grace for those of us who know you. Swimming in mercy. You've withheld what we'd rightly deserve. Help us to have a thorough, deep understanding of our own sin so that we can have a thorough understanding of the grace and hope that's ours because of Christ. We saw it this morning in the sweet and precious testimonies of baptism. Help us to rejoice generate rejoicing in our hearts because of the truth of the good news of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.